Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where we talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixer Gene, many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their zero to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.fm. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget, or we finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at onestop.fm, and we'll talk about your SaaS MVP project today. Today we have Michael Cardamon on the Big Break Software Podcast. Michael is a CEO and managing partner of Forum Ventures, a B2B SaaS-focused accelerator that helps grow and scale early-stage businesses. Numbers-wise, they invested $50 million into more than 250 companies. Portfolio is now reaching a valuation of roughly $3 billion. Michael is going to tell us how he got into the space, what he's learned about investing in SaaS, and what he looks for in his potential SaaS investments. How are you today, Michael? Doing well. How are you? Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So why don't you give me a quick uh, intro on uh, what Forum Ventures does? Sure, yeah. So we are recently rebranded from Accelerprise to Forum Ventures, which, which I can get into later. But we're a B2B SaaS-focused accelerator and seed fund. So we've been around for about seven years. On the accelerator side, we work with very early stage, typically like founding team, some early version of a product may or may not have revenue. We're often the first check-in and then we run this four-month kind of cohort-based program where we basically act, act as like an extension of your founding team, helping the companies with, you know, figuring out their ideal customer profile, go-to-market strategies, kind of, and then helping them kind of get to that next round of funding, um, typically a more formal pre-seed or seed round. And then we also have a seed fund. We you know, invest in kind of institutional seed rounds, usually one to $4 million rounds, writing 100 to 600K checks out of the seed fund in mm -hmm. companies that both go through our accelerator, but also outside the accelerator as well. Okay, great. So so the accelerator, is, is it sort of like a deal flow idea that you guys started? Well, like which came first, the fund or the accelerator? The accelerator came first. So yeah, the accelerator is a core part of what we do. We invest in every company that we accept into the accelerator. So, you know, we'll we'll accept maybe 5% of the companies that we talk to for the accelerator. Okay. We'll do about uh, two cohorts, two cycles of cohorts a year, about 30 companies per cycle. So about 60 companies a year. And yeah, we invest hundred K into every company that comes into the accelerator. And that's a core part of our business. It also, you know, is a, uh, a source of deal flow for our seed fund as well in that right. you know, we work closely with the founders and then, you know, I, I wish we had more capital to invest in every one of our companies that raises a seed round coming out of the accelerator. But uh, unfortunately, we don't right now, but we're able to invest in some of the companies that come out and uh, participate in their seed rounds. And then we also have flexibility out of our seed fund to invest in deals outside of the accelerator, uh, just because we see a, a, you know, a ton of deal flow through our network and community that we've spent seven years building. And 
not every company is going to be a fit for the accelerator. And so we wanted to have the flexibility to invest in deals outside the accelerator as well. Okay, that makes sense. So, uh, so, so tell me about the accelerator. Like, what makes it different, say, from like Y Combinator, or Tech Tech All Stars, and some of the other ones? Like, what you know? Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when I initially started, the thesis was there were a lot of generalist accelerators like YC and Tech Stars and Five Hundred Startups, uh, mm-hmm. and I felt like we were in kind of the early innings of the shift to to SaaS and to cloud. I was an early employee at Box back in 2008. So I was the 25th or 26th employee there, uh, spent some time there and had built a good network of people who were part of that first wave of SaaS companies. And the the idea and the thesis was like, that there, there were only a couple in the country focused on B2B SaaS at the time. And I felt like building an accelerator that was very hands-on and very specifically tailored to early stage B2B SaaS companies, carve out a a meaningful kind of part of the market and add a lot of value to founders and, and hopefully eventually to our to our investors. I was able to get a critical mass of kind of some of those early, you know, early Salesforce, early Marketo, like CEO of Gainsight, CEO of Zawara, a lot of like really good early box executives to, to kind of jump into the first fund with both some of their personal capital, but more importantly, their time to help get it off the ground. And, and so the way we think about it is like, like why Combinator's amazing and they built an amazing brand and they've had amazing companies. They're very generalist and pretty hard to be really hands-on now because they do 300 plus companies per cohort. Um, tech stars as well, like they have some corporate branded ones, but a lot of them are very generalist focused. Um, and ours is, is all focused on B2B and then we're just very hands-on. So we only do 10 companies per MD so that we can basically act as like this extension of your founding team uh, and, and like really be hands-on, like help you build out lead lists, sit in on sales calls and give you feedback, like review your pipeline and kind of, you know, we're almost like a outsourced VP of sales slash co-founder helping you navigate through the go-to-market process, get your early customers. And then we've had a lot of data points to learn from on on yeah. helping companies raise capital afterwards. So then we, we you know, we're very hands-on and help you get to that next round of funding. Okay, great. So when you're deciding who comes in, what are some of the critical factors that you're looking for? Yeah, so we're, you know, through the accelerator, especially but the seed fund as well, we're looking at companies that are, you know, really early, right? Like it's usually, like I said, founding team. They, they probably have some early version of a product, but it's not fully, you know, may not be fully built out. They may or may not have customers. So, so all pre-rev, mostly pre-revenue? I, I would say it's about half pre-revenue and then half are kind of sub you know 15k in mrr like they're early so if if they have customers obviously like we'll talk to customers and that's a part of the the the, how we evaluate it but a big part of what we do is look at the team and the market opportunity um and so when we look at the team we're looking at a few things one is like is there founder market fit like what what does this founding team know or understand about the problem they're solving or the market they're going after that, that okay. is kind of unique to them and their experience and their backgrounds. So that's one. Two is like, you know, are these great founders, which I hate using that term because every investor uses that term. It's such a, this opaque, subjective term that every investor says. Yeah, and like every founder. It would be really hard to qualify too. So what, I mean, because yeah. you might have some 21 year old that doesn't really have a track record. How do you know he's a great founder? Right. So you don't is the answer. What we look for and what we think about is like, what are, what are, what are the traits that would lead to someone becoming a great 
leader and founder. So we look for, you know, can they with clarity and conviction talk about how their market's going to evolve over the next five to 10 years and how they can win in that evolving market? And can they do that in a way that's like inspiring to the point where we're like excited about the opportunity and it feels like inevitable to us? Because that means they're going to be good at recruiting. It means they're going to be good at fundraising, like all the things that you need to be good at as a CEO. It means they're going to be good at convincing customers to get on board before they may have all the features that customer needs because they're, they're going to get bought into the vision and the future of, of what it could look like and like why it's important that they adopt their software. So so that's one thing that we look for. Another is, you know, do they... Just okay. to, be, to qualify, yeah. so that's really passion in the project or is it more like sales skills? It's, it's a lot of sales skills. It's, it's uh, you know, a simple way to think about it is like, would I or would like... Do we think it's likely people will go work for this person? Like, is it an, is is it inspiring? And a lot of it, you know, sales skills is a big part of it. Like, if you're good at sales, you tend to be better at this sort of stuff. But a lot of it is just, I, I think, comes down to like how much clarity can you talk about how you think the market's going to evolve, even if I don't agree with it. If you can talk about it with a lot of clarity and make it feel like it's inevitable that like the market's evolving in a certain way, and you can fit into that and win in that evolving market. And then you can do it with a lot of conviction. I think that that is what instills confidence in people um, to kind of jump on the train and get involved, right? So yeah. uh, I think a lot of it is that sales skills are certainly helpful, but I think if you're it, it needs you know if you're overly salesy, it, it doesn't it doesn't come across the same way. It's pretty nuanced and it's hard. But, yeah, of course. I mean, if you're over salesy, in my opinion, you're not really a good salesman. Yeah, uh, you know, sales yeah. needs to be natural. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's part of it. Part of it is like, are they obsessed with building a big business and obsessed with the business? And that doesn't mean they need to be working 24 seven, but it, it means like you can kind of tell when people are just there, they have this, like, you know, they're just obsessed with, with like understanding all the nuances of the business and what levers they need to pull to make it work. And like, they can tell you off the top of their head who the biggest customer is in their pipeline. And they can tell you, you know, why they won or lost a deal because they're just thinking about it constantly and it like eats away at them if they don't understand what they need to do to continue to build their business and grow their business. And they have like wild ambitions of building a big, a really big business. Um, so that's like another little nuanced thing that we look for in founders as well. Okay, um, so you're looking for like the next sort of unicorn then? Would you say you're looking for like an Uber and a Spotify? And yeah, I mean, we, we are looking for companies that have the potential to be kind of 100 million plus revenue type okay. scale, okay. Uh, which generally means, you know, billion plus type companies. Okay. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. What about size of the team? I mean, you mentioned team. What if what if there's a single founder, you know, uh, you know, that, and he's sort of, you know, hired out his tech team. Uh, like, tell me about the teams that you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, we have no hard and fast rules. Uh, I think it just depends on the founder. I, you know, an example is I was uh, an early angel investor in a company called Flexport. Um, I know them, yeah. So he was a solo founder with an outsourced tech team, which like a lot of, a lot of, you hear a lot of funds say that just like hard and fast rule, they won't do that. But I think it just depends on, like he had, wild ambition, incredible founder market fit, like knew the market inside and out, knew exactly how he was going to go about it and, and like knew what product he needed to build and he just needed someone to execute on that. And so like, you know, we don't have any hard and fast rules around it. 
I think it just comes down to, is it the right, if it's a highly technical product, we would want a technical founder there, right? If it's a, if it's a non, you know, if it isn't rocket science and it's like relatively straightforward kind of software product, you know, it's okay potentially to not have a tech co-founder there. Uh, if, if at least you have like a reliable outsourced kind of tech component to it, who can build the product so you can iterate and move fast enough for, as you're trying to navigate who your ideal customer profile is and what they actually care about and what they'll pay for and what they'll buy. That's where we see people get stuck a little bit is they outsource to a dev shop who isn't great or aren't prioritizing them. And then they just can't move and iterate as fast as someone who has a technical co-founder. So it's not ideal, but it's not a. Uh, so you're looking for it. usually a, a founder and a technical co-founder, sort of co-pilot. Yeah, I would say more often than not, we invest in companies that have two to three founders, but we have done plenty of solo founders. Yeah. yeah. I, would you say that um, these, all of these qualifiers, are the same things that you would look for in companies that you would want to invest in? Is it very similar, or would there be differences in someone that? In a company that you might accept in the accelerator, as opposed to making a, you know, buying a, a vested interest in a in a SaaS. Do you mean like investing out of the accelerator versus our seed fund? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, so if you like, or even in yourself, let, let's say it's, it's one of our listeners is is writing down these points and this says, okay, I want to go out and, and find a, a, you know, help be an angel or something. Yeah. Are they the, the same sort of? Um, points that you would look for in in a um, in one of your own investments. Yeah, so in the accelerator, we often have to take and and kind of underwrite more risk around is is there going to be is the go to market strategy going to work and will customers buy this because oftentimes they're they're very very early in that journey. Out of the yeah. seed fund, you know, we'll occasionally still invest. We've made a couple investments even pre-revenue out of the seed fund. But oftentimes we have a little bit more data around some early traction and customers where we can like talk to the customers and understand why they bought it. You know, would they pay more for it? Are they happy with it? Um, is it solving like a real pain for them? Um, so we can do a little bit more diligence around that than we typically can do out of the accelerator. But yeah, it's largely a lot of the same. We're looking for a lot of the same traits with the founder a lot of similar market dynamics of, you know, who else is in the market? How well funded are they? Is it dominated by incumbents with legacy tech where, you know, like we see a lot of vertical SaaS companies, there's still tons of industries where you'd be shocked that like they're, they're, the whole industry is being run on software that looks like it was made in the nineties. Like, you know, yeah. it's a, it, you know, so we look for a lot of just like, what are the, what are the different market dynamics that would lend itself to create an opportunity for, new software to come in um, and then do we think this is the right team to kind of go after that that market opportunity okay and um, what are some of the things that that you find uh, make some of the the company successful during the accelerator and after so you've accepted them what makes say for example some of them go on to become very successful and do you see some common traits in those yeah, so one of them is just this this like relentless focus on identifying your ideal customer profile and a relentless focus on progress. So the ones that we I think like end up doing doing really well are the ones who are like meticulous about saying, okay, here's where I want to be in six months. 
what are KPIs I can track on a weekly basis to make sure I'm making progress towards those goals, towards that longer term goal. And then they're just relentless about trying to do that. They're doing 50 customer discovery calls to like make sure they're finding who exactly is the right buyer for their product. They're like coming up with a hypothesis, they're testing it, they're iterating quickly. They're just, they just are, they're very, they move quickly, they iterate quickly, and they're just making like progress every single week. Uh, mm -hmm. And then that enables them to kind of build momentum as well. So like then they start sending out, you know, they might send out weekly updates to investors who are kind of tracking them and the investors see that they're making progress every single week. And so it starts to kind of build momentum, which is like a big part of how you fundraise is kind of building momentum. And there's a lot of ways to build momentum. But um, but yeah, I think a lot of that, a lot of it is that, is that it's that relentless focus on identifying the exact right ideal customer profile and like testing mm -hmm. hypothesis on who it might be and not being stuck in, you have an initial hypothesis on like, here's who I think our buyer is going to be and what they're going to care about. But having mm -hmm. like a couple hypotheses initially, testing them and then listening to the market, listening to the customers and being astute enough to kind of iterate quickly if you're hearing something slightly different than what you initially thought and like really zeroing in on who's the person who at a company, like what title, what person, what role, what do they care about that is gonna buy your product and pay for your product and love your product and then double down on finding more of those people. Um, so I think the people who are just like relentless about that are the ones who are successful. Do you guys have a framework for uh, that helps in the accelerator to sort of help with the, help with doing some of the, like tracking the KPIs? What are the KPIs that they should be looking at, um, and also helping with like finding customer customer avatars and the perfect uh, profile? Yeah, so we do a, we do a lot of that. It's usually um, like kind of not one size fits all for every company, so it's pretty custom. But we'll sit down with every company and do that exercise of okay, what, what are your goals over the next you know, four to six months? And then, you know, oftentimes it's around like revenue or traction or, you know, fundraising or some combination of all of those. And then we'll go back and look at like, okay, if, if like, if this is where you want to get to from a revenue or customer standpoint, what does your sales funnel look like or your acquisition strategy look like? And then what are those things that you need to do? What are the activities you need to do every week to kind of make those numbers work to get to your final state. And so oftentimes that's like number of calls you have, number of demos you set up in a week, number of outbound emails you're sending in a week. Like how many, how many do you need to have top of funnel on your lead list to, to start with? Like, should you start creating content? Is content going to be a major part of your strategy? And if so, how do you create content on a regular cadence and create like we call it like pillar posts and like come up with a whole strategy around the content kind of, piece of it and then tracking whether that's actually driving what you hoped it would drive. So yeah, we, 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 we kind of sit down with every company and map that out for them. Um, and then what we do is then help interject at every point. So we do weekly one-on-ones with every company. We'll understand like, how are you tracking those goals? If you're falling behind them, why are you falling behind? What's happening? What's the roadblocks? Is there something we can do? Can we make customer intros? Can we do a pipeline review? Can we, can you record sales conversations and we'll listen to it? Like if they're getting stuck at like the, the demo to close phase, like can we listen in on those and see if we can tweak how they're kind of having those conversations to improve the conversion rate. And a lot of the people on our team have pretty deep kind of go to market experience at, you know, either as founders or as, as sales leaders at different SaaS companies. So we've got a lot of experience on the team in, in that, in that regard.
Right. It sounds like all valuable, uh, valuable mentorship uh, for your your um, for the, all the companies that are in it. What sort of equity do they, do they have to give up to get this hundred thousand? Yeah. So our standard deal is on, is a hundred thousand for seven and a half percent is our standard deal okay. coming to the And how does that how does that affect um, further rounds? I mean, so you're 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 going on and, and helping them fundraise and stuff. How does it generally? What's the path? Um, do they do they find that that was quite rich at that time because you know a hundred thousand for seven and a half percent to me sounds quite rich. Um, how does that affect later later uh, you know fundraising? Yeah, numbers? yeah. I mean, look, there's no question an accelerator is an expensive form of capital, so it's not going to make sense for every company. Uh, but we find that it makes sense for a lot of companies, and we can be incredibly helpful for them. And we have a pretty good track record of then getting companies funded afterwards that, you know, where we think we can kind of optimize the outcome of their round in a way that it's, you know, worth it to, for the dilution earlier. Yeah. So like downstream investors, you know, usually don't, they understand kind of we're in line with kind of standard accelerator terms across what they see from other accelerators. And I think they'll, they appreciate the fact that our, our companies are, much more in a lot of cases much more prepared and polished than they would have been if they otherwise didn't go through the accelerator and yeah i mean i think last you know last cycle 30 you know maybe 30 companies went out and probably 60 percent of them raised a million plus like within a couple months of our investor really? week okay. and like so a, that's great yeah and like so a, bun a bunch more will end up raising rounds relatively soon here as well so you know we're pretty we've had a pretty high hit rate of helping companies get, get funded afterwards. Um, okay. Yeah. And talk to me then about how, how that may work out for, say a company comes in, they get a hundred thousand from you, they give it away seven and a half percent. Generally, how long does that hundred thousand last them about? I mean, uh, I know it's, it's different, but you know, if you can just use sort of a, a rough gauge and what you, what it or guidelines that you feel like that should last. Yeah. It's, I mean, at a minimum, we want to make sure, and, and before we accept them into the program, that it's going to last at least through the end of the program, which is four months. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, it will last longer than that, uh, but also, oftentimes, a lot of our companies will raise angel rounds or pre-seed rounds even during the program, just to help them kind of keep moving fast mm -hmm. during the program. So, um, and and if a company needs you know needs additional capital on day one, like we'll help kind of introduce them to our network and help them kind of try to secure additional funding um, right out of the gate. But but yeah, we're typically looking at it from the perspective of we want to make sure our 100K coming in will last at least the four months during the program to give them like a real shot at kind of building out some initial traction and getting a, getting a shot at raising more capital. Okay, and generally, how much are they, when they come out of the accelerator, let's say if they were at say a thousand MRR or something like that. Generally, what are you looking for by the time they get out? Are they trying to get like? Are you trying to get them to ten to fifteen thousand MRR, or where, where are they at usually with their when they've gone through? Yeah, so it depends on um, you know are they selling you know higher velocity SMB SaaS where it's like you know shorter sales cycles but but more customers. In which case, like we, yeah, we want to see kind of consistent growth in MRR. Mm -hmm. <laughs> usually to that like 10k plus an MRR 
mm-hmm. you know, if it's if they're selling into big enterprises with long sales cycles, like the sales cycles might be longer than the four month program. So what we're looking for is can they get meaningful traction towards pilots or POCs with enterprises that could turn into like meaningful six figure contracts if those pilots convert and then have they clearly defined, you know, what is a, what is a successful pilot look like with that, with that customer that they're working with so that, you know, if they're halfway through the pilot, they can kind of get a clear understanding of like, look, they said, these are the KPIs they care about that they want to see happen during the pilot in order for them to deem it successful and want to pay, you know, sign up for an annual contract. And we're trending ahead of those KPIs. So we have a high, you know, they can then go to investors with a high amount of confidence that, these pilots are going to convert. They have an understanding of what the pricing is going to be once they do convert. And so those are less about, you know, a smooth kind of up and to the right growth of MRR and more about, can you just prove enterprises will pay a lot of money for it? And can you show data points that kind of uh, give a clear line of sight to meaningful revenue in the future, even if you don't haven't officially closed any of them yet. And some okay, will so- close some of those customers during the program, but not all of them. Sure. So some some will still come out of the accelerator. Let's say they're doing ten to fifteen thousand. Are they then maybe almost close to sort of break even at that point, or are they still trying to grow? You're encouraging them to grow. I mean, yeah. Most most of the companies that well, let me rephrase it. Every single company that comes into the accelerator has aspirations of building a venture scale business. And therefore, okay, so want they're, to they're, go out and raise venture. To grow and, yeah, they're they're okay. investing in growth. The, you know, they okay. some inevitably end up going down the path of being more bootstrapped, or like maybe they raise a seed round and then they feel like, well, maybe we don't want to rate, do a venture scale business, and they like kind of get to profitability and self sustaining, and and that's okay. And we have some companies that do that and have grown nicely doing that over uh-huh. the years, but yeah. but. Every company comes into the accelerator with aspirations of building a venture scale okay. business and aspirations of raising a venture round, and so they're looking to invest in growth, uh, even if you know, at even if it means running the business at a loss. Obviously, right. okay. they need to manage cash flow, and like it depends on burn and you know when yeah, yeah. when they think they can raise and level of confidence in raising and all that kind of stuff, but. Okay, so so they get to the level where they they want to raise again, and you say million is generally what they what it's, they would go for. And, no, I would and say what kind of use equity? A, yeah, we use a million as like a a, a, a kind of arbitrary number that we use to track like how many raise a million plus. But I would say generally companies go out with two ideas. One is raise a pre-seed round, and pre-seed rounds could be anywhere from you know call it five hundred k to a million and a half. These days, yeah. sometimes up to, sometimes people raise a two million dollar round and call it a pre-seed, but let's call it let's say five hundred k to a million and a half. Yeah. So that's some subset of companies go out and raise that amount, or that that's what their target is. And then the other subset go out and try to raise like an institutional seed round, which could be anywhere from like a million and a half to four million. Um, I, you know, with the average probably being in the like two to three million range. Okay. And what kind of valuations are are they generally getting when they're when they're trying to do because they've just come out you've got seven and a half percent um they're making say fifteen thousand mrr what kind of valuations are they getting what kind of equity are they having to give up to get this you know to get them yeah so i would say if it's a pre-seed round um most of the time they're giving up kind of 
10 to 15 percent is like the okay. average so they're around 20 so they're around 20 with your seven then yes is that right yeah okay. and then i would say if it's if they're going out and raising a seed round on average they're giving up like 15 to 20 percent okay so that anywhere between 20 and 30 percent to get to that yeah. two to three million which by that time you know should last them a couple of years and give them a pretty good chance of, of of at yeah. least, you know, surviving. Eh? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it gives them, uh, you know, it used to be, uh, it's interesting, it used to be, the, the market is kind of crazy right now for funding. It used to be, you know, that companies would raise a seed and then they'd go out and try to raise an A 18 to 24 months later. These days, like, we have some of our companies going back and raising an A round, you know, a pretty big A round, like a $15 million A nine months or 12 months after they raise the seed round if if there's like really good growth and a, a great narrative and story around how big the market opportunity is and they're executing really well so yeah it's it, it's all kind of dependent on market dynamics like how how technical is it how what are the sales cycles how quickly do you need to grow is it is it such that like it's a land grab for market share and like you just need to move as quickly as possible because once you get into a customer is pretty sticky, but it's, you're fighting with a bunch of other venture back companies, or do you not have to raise capital that fast because it's a less competitive market? Um, and, and it's more just like you'd rather grow in a, in a more sustainable way. So it depends on a lot on market dynamics, but yeah, that seed round could last anywhere from whatever to whatever the next milestone is, whether that's a series a or self-sustaining. Okay. Okay. And, what about, um, are there certain things that you have found trends um, in the SaaS market now? Because as you mentioned, it is very competitive, right? There's a lot of new SaaS coming in. I, you know, I, every time I look around, there's some new uh, mail autoresponder coming out. Um, what are you looking for, for your accelerators and your own investments? Are there certain, uh, are there, you know, certain criteria that you look for that you have a feeling that's going to be successful, maybe like something under the radar, like a trucking, uh, you know, something that measures um, containers moving from, yeah. or, or do you look for those like live chat things or, you know, things, you no, know, what yeah, makes we're, a good... We're generally not, if it's a highly crowded market, it needs to be an exceptional team with like meaningful early traction for us to really mm -hmm. look at it. So yeah, we're, gen I would say we generally look at kind of like, probably about five categories. So, and oftentimes it's, they each have kind of their own rationale. So one is we do a lot of vertical SaaS. We think there's still a lot of niche, but large industries that are laggards in adopting technology where they're still using incumbent technology that's typically backed by private equity that's not investing in product at all. They're just like cutting costs and trying to, you know, playing the private equity game. And we think there's an opportunity still to, just bring bring in like the next generation of kind of you know great user experience and can, can you give me an example? I'm thinking of an example right now. There's do you know MindBody software? Yeah, so that's a great example of a great vertical SaaS company. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. something like that massive, massive market. Nothing yeah. against MindBody, but I mean I've spoken. I sell into that. A lot of people, oh, their users are always complaining yeah. about it, but they said there's nothing else, you know? Yeah, they, yeah. They so feel like there's perfect, nothing else. That's a perfect example. But, like, they're even, people do complain about their product, but their product is not even nearly as dated as what we see in other industries. 
where it's like literally it looks like you see a screenshot and it looks like it's like Microsoft, you know, it looks like it's from like the 90s and you're like, how, how are they running their business <laughs> yeah. on this yeah. software? Yeah. Um, MindBody certainly has some of those dynamics though, um, but that's a good example. Uh, so, so that's one, we do a lot of vertical SaaS. We do a lot of like, you know, I hate to use this term because it's so broad, but like future of work, what we're really looking for is we, we firmly believe this shift to like remote is happening in a very real and massive way. And that inherently creates a lot of opportunities to rethink how people manage remote workers, how you recruit remote workers, how you kind of reskill people to kind of fit remote jobs now now like geographies or you're breaking down walls around like where you need to be to, in order to get a job at certain places so we'll look at a lot of stuff in and around that um we do a lot of like applied ai where you know there might have been like first generation SaaS, sh you know shift to like a first generation SaaS, but now the technology is getting to the place where where you can kind of do things even more efficiently, leveraging kind of new NLP APIs or AI uh, that we think then have a chance to kind of supplant the like first generation of SaaS companies that came along and, you know, disrupted the, you know, on-prem incumbents. Um, so we do a lot of stuff around kind of applied Can AI. Can you give me an example of that? Like one where like, say uh, there's a, you know, like a well-entrenched SaaS that has been disrupted by uh, say AI. AI technology because they could do better. Like, why wouldn't that SaaS just bring in AI and and make their their platform better? Or is it? Yeah. So sometimes like sometimes they will. Some some big companies will be good at that. But um, yeah, like a good we're in a company called Roots Automation, um, which is uh, basically like robotic process automation for um, mid market like small mid market companies because like the big the big RPA companies are just really hard to implement and they sell into big enterprises and they have like a bunch of consultants come in and implement it for you in a lot of cases. And so Roots Automation came in and said like, okay, you know, we're gonna, we built all this at a big enterprise. We're now gonna kind of democratize that and make it easily accessible for smaller companies who can invest millions of dollars in consultants to implement it. And, and then they are just leveraging a bunch of technology and layering in kind of controls over it to basically provide digital coworkers as a service. So it's like, okay, you were doing a bunch of paperwork around filing claim, like when someone files a claim, if you're an insurance company, and like they might've had software to move that paperwork around and create workflows, but it was still manually done by a human pressing buttons in software to kind of move it around. And they can say like, you know what, we'll build a digital code, like a bot basically that can do all of the tasks to kind of move it from accepting a claim, you know, taking information in from a claim, processing the information in the claim, putting it into whatever system it needs to be put into, and then and then like surfacing the information that needs to be surfaced to the decision maker and automate all of that, as opposed to just building software to make the workflows a little bit more efficient. Um, so that's an example of one company, but we've, we've done a lot of companies in and around that space. And then another, we'll do a bunch of stuff in like supply chain logistics again, because I think we're just at a point in time where uh, there is, it's, a, it's one of the largest industries in the world. It's incredibly, like there's incredible strain on supply chain around the world, which means like an acceleration of adoption of a technology, which, which means opportunity. And so we look at a lot of stuff in and around supply chain logistics. 
Uh, and then we do a lot of stuff around fintech and insurance tech and stuff because we just think okay. those industries are massive. And, and those are also being yeah. hugely disrupted yeah. by you know crypto and, yeah. and some of the brick and brick and mortar banks are just awful. You know, like just terrible yeah. experience. And, uh, any like geographic locations that you like better than others? Are you <clears throat> focused mostly in the U.S. or uh, we're mostly focused in North America. So we have an office in San Francisco, New York, and Toronto. So we do a lot yeah. of stuff in Canada as well. We think it's a great market up there with a lot yeah. of really talented, talented people, great SaaS companies. So mostly North America. We occasionally, especially through the accelerator, will invest in international stuff in like Latin America. We've done some in Africa some in Europe as well. Um, so fairly agnostic geographically, some in India as well. Fairly agnostic geographically for the accelerator, the seed fund is largely focused on North America. And is that because you get better returns when you go to sell them or? It's because we're willing to underwrite more risk through the accelerator and we view like those markets, we're still getting up to speed on them. We don't have as full of an understanding and as big, big of a grasp on those markets as as we, as we would like to have in order to make like a bigger, more concentrated bet out of the seed fund. Uh, but we're getting up to speed on them. We're learning, we're learning more about them. I think there's like enormous opportunity across those markets because those, their markets are growing so quickly. Um, and we've done some, like we invested in one company called Sote, which is basically like the flex port for Africa. And the team is split across San Francisco and Africa, um, but all their customers are in Africa. Um, and that's one where we just felt like we understood the business model really well because I had been, you know, I know Flexport really well. Um, and we really liked the founders and thought there was like a really interesting opportunity there because, you know, logistics in Africa is just dominated by big analog incumbents, essentially. Yeah. And it's like a, you know, rapidly growing uh, region and continent. Yeah, so. that makes sense. What about deal flow? Like, if if any of our listeners are are looking to invest in their own companies, they're taking all of this information that you're giving them and saying, okay, they're taking notes. It's okay. This is what I'm looking for a founder that and a technical co-founder, yeah. someone that's probably got into industry experience and has passion. What? Where do they go to find these uh, types? Of, do you recommend that they? Um, go into some like brokers or, or they go to angels list or where would you go? Um, or would you, if someone that's interested that was a good friend of yours, what would you tell them? Yeah. So I wouldn't use brokers. Yeah. I think bro brokers are great, especially if you want to sell your business. I find uh -huh. most VCs, uh, don't take intros from brokers all that seriously for, for funding rounds, especially early stage funding rounds. Um, so, I would recommend, there's a lot of resources. There's like Crunchbase, AngelList. There's a, a thing called Signal from NFX. Um, there's a lot of places to find lists of investors. Uh, increasingly, investors are putting up forms to just like take cold inbounds from companies. I think that's becoming more normal, but, but I also think like a lot of investors still value warm introductions. So if you can find a path to an investor, that's great. If not, then I would still reach out to them. Um, like we have a form on our website. You can either apply for the accelerator or you can fill out a form if you want to try to be considered for the seed fund. Uh, you can also, you know, my DMs are open on Twitter. Like people kind of reach out from all different 
channels. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, I, I would say... This is for someone that's looking for investment in their SaaS. That's what you Yeah, saying. someone who's looking I'm to raise like money. If someone wants to buy a SaaS or invest in a SaaS, what would you do? I mean, oh. Where would they go to get their own deal flow? Yeah, if you want to... Uh, so to get... Yeah, I would look at... Angel list is certainly one um, product hunt. If you're looking for stuff really early, you know a lot of people kind of post. Stuff and then just, just do like do your own kind of just get your own outbound going and kind of just start. Doing yeah, your or own or participate with syndi- like go talk go look at like syndicates. Sign up for a bunch of the syndicates on Angel List and see what they're investing in and like start getting in the flow. Maybe make some small investments through some of the syndicates on Angel List just to kind of get get in the flow and understand how are they thinking yeah. about deals what are they looking for where do they source that deal i so i would you know i would i would start by doing that there's also a bunch of new uh kind of angel programs so you know we're launching something around like how you know allowing people to be like venture partners and get involved with us but there's a lot of ones that have been around for longer like first round does one hustle fund does one called the angel squad so there's a lot of these programs out there that kind of teach people how to be angel investors and then create community around it to help them share deal flow and everything. So I would okay. recommend, if, if a friend asks me, I would recommend them checking out some of those angel programs okay. and seeing if they can get into those to, to kind of build a community around them so they're not you know, on an island trying to do it themselves. And then as far as buying companies, there's interesting new platforms like micro acquire and others that are mm-hmm. that are trying to make it easier to kind of find and buy and sell SaaS companies like create marketplaces to buy and sell and then obviously yeah. there's a lot of kind of M&A brokers at various stages and sizes of companies that you can yeah. engage with and, and and what would you say percentage wise of somebody's say uh, their their net worth would you say what do you reckon like 10% or what do you I mean cuz Obviously, everyone has their own uh, different appetite for risk, but generally, like for for the guidelines on that. Yeah, I I don't really. I'm not the right person to ask. I have a irrationally high percentage of my net worth tied up in high risk illiquid investments, including my own <laughs> funds. So yeah. uh, I'm not the right person to ask. Probably. I don't know. You know, it depends. I think it just depends. Like I have a friend who does kind of uh, like education around personal finance and he's like uh-huh. very conservative around this stuff he would probably yeah. say yeah under 10 percent, like five to ten percent yeah if that but, um yeah but you're at like say 80 or something like that right? yeah i mean i'm probably i don't even, i don't even want to think about what number on that. <laughs> so but you're i'd say you're pretty well diversified though if you've got to you know uh, yes into 250 different company what yeah. would you say the average return that you expect to um to get back on that. So of the 250, what's sort of a blended rate of return that you think is some, some are going to be like 300 and some are going to be zero. Um, what do you feel? Yeah, like? I think about it more. Each company is hard to predict, right? Like any company, you know, I, I've had angel investments that are a hundred X and some that were zero. It's hard to predict. Right. So, yeah. uh, but when I look at it from a fund perspective, like I can, I can tell you like our first fund, uh, which was deployed like 2014 to 2016, you know, it was probably, so call it 2015 for like average time of deployment, which means we're six years in or so ish. Uh, you know, that's marked at like six X, which is probably, you know, 
30% IRR type returns. Yes, yeah, that's great. And it's still growing. Like we have 18 companies still live. Um, I suspect like fund two and fund three on our accelerator side are trending ahead of where fund one was at the same time frames. We'll mm-hmm. see if that holds. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're, our goal is to five X plus all of our funds over like a 10 year fund life. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's great. And so there's opportunity for investors to come in and contact you directly and say, Hey, this sounds great. What are your minimums to get into, into, uh, into the fund? Yeah. So the accelerator funds, uh, are kind of spoken for, like we have LPs who just want to keep funding those, um, mm-hmm. the seed fund, uh, We'll probably go out to raise our second seed funds next year sometime. Um, and yeah, you know, have to think through minimums. Probably, it, it depends uh, on on kind of if we're, we're strategically valuable we're like, we, to be in the community or not. But you know, relatively flexible. Like, right. You know. But are we talking a hundred grand, or are we talking like two million or something? No. I, yeah. Like uh, you know, we'd probably take as low as a hundred grand if it's someone who's like valuable to have in the community. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Um, well, Michael, we're getting close to the end of, end of our hour agreed upon time. I want to make sure you get off to do the things that you need to do the rest of the day. Um, so anything that you want to leave our listeners with about in particular about, um, you know, whether they're thinking about investing in this type of, you know, in, SaaS companies, or they they want to uh, buy their own, buy a SaaS. Any anything that you can leave our listeners with? No, I think you know, angel investing can be great, but I think a lot of people like I think I, I think there's it's one of those industries where having connections into the ecosystem is is like highly valuable, and also just understanding the idea that like most of these companies aren't going to work, and so you know, having a portfolio strategy versus like putting all your eggs in one basket. Um, so if you're looking at kind of, if you're new to angel investing and looking to get into it, I would definitely look at doing it with angel groups or joining communities or joining, like doing it through syndicates on angel lists so that you can get your kind of your bearings on, on it and like learn a bit with small checks before you really start kind of deploying more, more meaningful capital for you. Right. And, but, Sounds like sort of going with a, um, you know, like a firm like yours where they can get a manager that knows, lives and breathes it is probably the, the best way to get into it, uh, would you say? And there's, I know there's other ones out there because we've interviewed some. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a ton of amazing emerging managers coming up the ranks right now. And I, yeah, I tend to think like if you aren't really connected into this space, Getting exposure to this asset class through funds, I think, is a, is a good way to good way to do it. Whether it's us or the you know a number of other really good emerging managers yeah. and and fund managers, um, but I think it just dep- depends on like how much you're looking to deploy into this asset class and like what your goals are. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, and thanks so much for your time. Uh, how can people find more about you and contact you if they're interested in, in following up on anything that we spoke about? Yeah, our, our website is just forumvc.com. You can apply for the accelerator. If you're a SaaS founder, early stage SaaS founder, you can apply for the accelerator or apply for the seed fund right on there. I'm just Mike at forumvc.com and I'm MG Cardamone on Twitter. Uh, okay. Those are probably the, the easiest ways to get in touch. 
Great. Thanks so much, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner. <music>